Okay, we're in Amos chapter 2, okay? Where's Amos? It's after the big prophets and then the little prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you find Hosea, you can find Amos. Let me pray real quick. Father, we just ask you to bless our look at your word today because um, it's applicable to all times and to all of your people. So we pray you'd help us to grasp it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, there is a principle in scripture, a principle that's articulated really well in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17, which I'm going to get to in a second. And it's a, it's a universal principle regarding God's people because I don't know any era in church history where um, so many churches have dedicated themselves to providing a carnival as a place for worship. And then our time, I mean that's kind of what characterizes our time. So a lot of churches literally aim to put on a show to entertain an audience and that's how they regard the congregation and audience for their performances instead of focusing on exalting the living God. Um, the carnival atmosphere, it's, it's kind of amazing. And the thought is if you entertain people properly they'll keep coming back and then you, you can grow really big and maybe you can become famous. I mean that's sort of really the, where the push is for that stuff. You might even become a mega church and that sounds great being mega and uh, there's nothing wrong with being a, a large, large church. Um, I hope you all know there are very large churches that do exist to exalt God and proclaim his word with depth and accuracy and all of that there are. You can have 10,000 people gathered to worship a great and holy God and, uh, and you can have 50 people in a little storefront somewhere who are doing the carnival thing because they think that's how they're going to grow. So it's not about size, it's about what you're trying to accomplish there. I think the storefront 50 people would probably be a bad show, but the, but the mega church can put on a great show, Broadway level show for you to keep you, keep you entertained and coming back. Um, the heroes of the entertainment church world are the ones that make it big though. I mean, so they're the ones that matter. And the mega church carnival, it's, it's literally a big business in America. It's, it's huge. Um, and the big ones are what make the business model work. So little churches try to imitate them. And then, and just the last few years, I mean, it, it's always sort of happened every now and then, but just in the last three or four years, I've, I can't remember a time in my life when so many major scandals have come in these entertainment churches, these mega churches. I mean, just horrible things. Just two months ago, a megachurch pastor in Tennessee was found to be in an immoral relationship. That's pretty common, except he's already back in his pulpit. So, uh, well, he's, he's all better now, you know, he's, he's fixed it now. So standards for leadership are just non-existent. I mean, they don't even think of it. Actually, I think in that church, several staff members did resign because he wanted to come back. There's no elders and nobody to hold him accountable. He can just do what he wants. So that's not unusual at all. So the question is, is God pleased when churches are only sort of about him? Or is he pleased when he is the peripheral, he's kind of the, 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 the hook to get people to come for the show? Is, is, that, is, that, is he pleased with that? And, and you might think, well, what do you mean? Of course he's, he's not pleased with that. And, and what church would ever put anything in the place of God? You haven't watched TV lately. <laughs> I mean, it happens all the time all the time. Um, and if they're not about him then is he pleased? Is God pleased with when he himself is a tool for other people's ambition 
or desire for fame or fortune or, or whatever? And the answer is of course not. So if you asked God, if you asked God who in this world deserves a scourging judgment the most, is it wicked pagan sinners or is it churches where God is a peripheral figure in the church? Here's the principle, 1 Peter chapter 4. Now Peter is a shepherd, he's telling Christians they're going to suffer, he warns them to suffer for Jesus not as a malefactor so he says, this is 1 Peter 4.15, I'm leading up to 4.17. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. So if we suffer for being a Christian, for following Christ, we're to glorify God, that's a good thing. If you suffer for being a, a, a sinner or a wicked person or a criminal or a fool, then don't, there's no glory for you in that. There's nothing, and God is not glorified by that. So here's the principle, 1 Peter 4.17. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel. Now the people that don't believe and aren't following Christ, they're going to face God's judgment. But he starts with the church. And I think that's one reason all these scandals are coming out. People think they can get away with stuff, but he's going to bring it out. Yes. And he should. He's going to bring it out. Before God judges the wicked unbelievers, he starts with God's house. And I, and I do think that's why we're seeing so many things being exposed. But it's a shame it's a shame on the gospel. But he's letting it happen. He's letting it happen and exposing it because I think he's starting a path of judgment. Ezekiel chapter 9 has a really powerful image in it. So Ezekiel 9 follows, a, um, well there's a really detailed description of the idolatry of Judah. So we're talking about, in Amos we're talking about Israel and Judah and Amos is from Judah but he's going to Israel so this is much later in time. Ezekiel is much later when the judgment's already coming. And in chapter 9 he has this incredible vision. It's a, a, a vision of horrible judgment. And six men, so these are sort of angelic characters. This is a vision now, okay. Six men he sees coming from the north to Jerusalem with brutal weapons in their hands. And there's a seventh guy and he's got an ink horn on his hip. So he doesn't have a weapon, he has ink. And this is what he's supposed to do with the ink. He's supposed to, he's to mark, quote, those who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst, in the midst of Judah. So this mark, he's going to mark the people that are grieving the failure of God's people to be God's people, the idolaters and the wicked and all of these kinds of things. So he's going to mark those people so they'll be protected. They'll be secure. They actually grieve over what the nation has become. They are not partakers of evil. So when the six executioners and this scribal sort of figure enter Jerusalem, they go to the temple and they stand by the brazen altar where the sacrifices are done in the temple. And then in Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 3, the glory of God which stands over the Ark of the Covenant, leaves, it, it starts to move and it goes out to where the threshold of the temple is because he's not going to be in his temple anymore. They've been so bad. 
And then the Lord speaks to the executioners in verse 5. He says go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. So again this is a vision. And here is where it ties to Peter's words. It's just really interesting. The Lord tells the men the next sentence is you shall start from my sanctuary. So the temple is a super holy place. It's the holiest place in the world and they're to start there and execute just judgment on Judah. Judgment begins with the household of God. So that's a vision. It's a spiritual view of what's coming to Judah which is the Babylonian invasion which is going to wipe out and slaughter many many people and then take many many people off into captivity. But the point is God judges his own people first because their faithfulness their faithfulness is the only hope the world has. And if we fail the world has no hope. So the principle is really important as we move forward in our study of Amos. Okay so now I'm going to Amos where I told you we were going to start. So last week we talked about this really interesting approach that God chose as he revealed his message to Amos. The prophetic ministry of Amos is really aimed at the northern kingdom. So there's Israel and Judah at this time he's from Judah. He's going to Israel. God, that's where God wants him to go. And remember after Solomon the holy nation of Israel was split into two. You know the northern tribes and the southern tribes. So God's covenant nation was split by human arrogance and human pride. We also mentioned that because Jerusalem is in Judah the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom built these worship places with golden calves to draw people away from Jerusalem so they wouldn't worship where God is wanted them to. And that's why Amos's prophecy begins in verse 2 at the Lord it says the Lord roars from Zion that's the holy city and from Jerusalem he utters his voice so he's speaking from there. So God's house is where he says it is. So Israel it, the northern kingdom is the target but as we saw last time Amos prophesies against all of their neighbors first, right? It's clever because if the Israelites in Samaria are, are listening to the prophecy that Amos is giving, if it's being spoken, they would be really happy with these judgments that are being pronounced in all their rival neighbors. So this prophet comes and he starts prophesying against their neighbors. Yeah, oh yeah, judge them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Edom, yeah, oh Gaza, yeah, yeah, Tyre, uh-huh. Yeah, so Damascus, which is Syria, Gaza, um, Philistines, Tyre, which is the Phoenicians, and then Edom and Ammon and Moab, six Gentile powers in their immediate area. And last time we stopped with Ammon and Moab. And God judged them for many sins. He says for three sins, even for four, which means a whole, whole large, a large number. But he only mentions one sin for each one. Remember that? So we talked about crimes of atrocity were the focus of the sins. So today in, in chapter 2 verse 4 we come to the neighbor that shouldn't be a neighbor at all and that's, that's Judah. So Judah should be one nation with Israel but he's going to attack um, Judah with this prophecy now. And remember Amos is from Judah, right. So his prophecies are not partisan. They are not based on any grudge that he has because th that they could easily well you're from Judah. You're from Judah you just don't like us. 
but he's going to prophesy against Judah first. I'm a big believer, if you know me, you know I'm a big believer in criticizing our side, if not more than the other side in matters, oh, matters of faith, matters of the church, the culture wars, politics, you name it. Um, I judge people, I personally judge people's maturity and worthiness in part on how willing they are to point out problems in our own camp and whatever realm that is in. So um, people get mad at me for doing that but I really think that's important. If, if you make excuses for your side or and downplay the faults of the viewpoint you love or the people that you love and point out all those same faults on the other side, you're part of the problem. I mean to me. You are declaring that power is more important than truth which is a ruinous philosophy of life to me. So when our side does wrong like the other side does we should be the first ones to point it out and say that's wrong. You're doing what they're doing. We live in a culture of division and payback and whatever works, whatever works is right. That's the attitude that actually split the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms. So that's not right. Whatever works isn't right. You know what's right? What's right is what's right. And if our people are doing wrong, if our people are doing wrong, we need to call them out on it. They should be called out on it by us. So when you do that, what does that do? Well, fair-minded people hear you call out the evil in your midst and they're more open. That's been my experience. If they hear you do that, they say, okay, this person's not a partisan. He's not on his side no matter what. He's willing to listen to criticisms of his side. And that's important. So Israel can't say Amos is biased against Israel when he's going hard after Judah first before he even speaks to Israel. So he isn't with his tribe, he's with God who is over all the tribes. You understand what I'm saying? Good. Well somebody does. (laughs) (laughs) So if you were here last time you know that that God judging, um, he judged the neighbor states for these crimes of atrocity. Now there's a really important thing to notice when he goes after Judah, really important. What standard did God appeal to when he judged the Philistines or the Phoenicians or the Syrians or Moab or Ammon or Edom? What standard did he use to judge them? It's not scripture. I mean just in what he said he never mentions scripture. He never mentions the commandments. There's not any arrangement that he had made with them that he's going to judge them by. He judges them by the universal principles of right and wrong that every culture knows and believes in. He, he made us moral beings. We all have morality. We all hate it when people wrong us and we call it wrong, right? That's the standard. That's the standard. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of Moses, God's law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. 
So as far as God's, now listen really carefully, I'm making distinctions. As far as God's judgment is concerned, it's okay that people are a law unto themselves. In other words, if people have never heard the law of God, never heard the Ten Commandments, never heard what God ordained for people to do through revelation, they've still got the law of conscience in their heart, they've still got morality in their being because we're made moral creatures by God. So when we talk about autonomous, it's, it's evil for people to be a law unto themselves against God. But in, in this one sphere of God's judgment, he's willing to judge them by that. Okay, you're a law unto yourself. Whatever law you choose to follow yourself, I will judge you by that law. And you know what? Everyone is guilty. Everyone is guilty. You don't need the Ten Commandments to be a sinner. You can just measure yourself by your own standards of what you hate other people doing. And if you've done it, you're guilty before God. I hate it when people lie to me. I hate it when they gossip about me. That is so wicked. Yeah, I've done it a few times. <laughs> if you don't like people lying about you and you lie about them, if you're a mean girl and you're mad at mean girls, you're guilty. I mean, it's just true through everything. If you hate it when people steal from you and if you've ever stolen anything, you're guilty. So in the context of Amos chapter 1, which we talked about last week, um, just think of the things they were, God was judging them for. If you wouldn't like to be enslaved as an entire community and sold to the Edomites, then you shouldn't enslave other people and sell them to the Edomites, right? If you don't want to have an iron sledge run over you, you shouldn't run iron sledges over other people, right? If you don't want one of your dead heroes dug up out of their tombs and burned before you, uh, if you don't want that to happen to George Washington, I saw George yesterday, by the way, um, <laughs> then don't do it to other people. Don't do that to other people. God will judge you by your own standard if you don't know his. No human being lives up to their own standards. So on judgment day, God will reveal to everyone individually the time after time after time that they behaved in a way that they condemned in other people. And no, the Bible says all mouths will be shut on that day. Everybody that's planning to plead their case before God and how righteous they are, they're going to be utterly ashamed. They'll have nothing to say. They're not going to make that argument. They probably won't be able to stand before him. So you don't need the Ten Commandments to be condemned. So God judged the Syrians, the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites by their own standard. And he condemns them for that. But now, as we come to Judah, where Jerusalem is, the chosen people, God holds before them the standard that he gave them. The standards that the God who freed them from Egypt and settled them in the Holy Land, the standards that he gave them, the standards that came through Moses and which they swore all that the Lord has spoken we will do. That standard. So notice how God speaks to Judas. Now we're in Amos chapter 2 verse 4. Finally caught up to where we are. Now we're just going to look at Judah today. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, exactly the same pattern he used with all of these pagan nations, that little saying there. A lot of sins, you guys have a lot of sins. He says, I will not revoke its punishment. So that's the same pattern we've seen. So God is evaluating them. The, the real God, the God who's actually there, who made the whole world, he's evaluating the people he chose and called to himself 
and he's evaluating them on the terms that he established a relationship with them, the covenant, and he finds them horribly, woefully lacking to the point of a punishment they cannot avoid. He says, I will not revoke its punishment. And here's the reason, verse 4, because they have, they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. They've rejected the law of the Lord. It doesn't concern them. They don't think about it. They don't care about it. It doesn't interest them. They don't live their life in any way based on what God had told them to do. They not only don't study it, they just find the law of God an annoying burden, this religious thing. Yeah, yeah, something happened a long time ago with Moses and yeah, we don't really pay attention to that. The Hebrew word here reject is strong. They reject the law of God. Other, other words that translate that same word in English are, are abhor, cast off, condemn, despise, disdain. I mean the, uh, the law of God. That's how they feel about the law of God in Judah. They have no use for it. They see no advantage to it. What a contrast between those who love the law of God. You can't have a further contrast than this. Some people love God's law. Some people are indifferent. Some people reject it. They rejected it as a people. Almost all of them. They reject what God himself says. Let me read for you Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12. This is back. This is Moses. Now Israel what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. And love him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. It's Deuteronomy 10.12. The commandments are not arbitrary. They, they are for our good. He even says that. So we see that more and more as people in our culture break away from God's perspective, God's rule our creator's point of view. We don't see, we don't see a world flowering in brotherhood and goodness, do we? I'm a child of the 60s. I was growing up in the 1960s. You know that, you know what that generation was going to create? Do you remember? They sang about it all the time. Peace, love, and brotherhood. What do those old folks do now? <laughs> what, 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 what is, how is the world full of peace, love, and brotherhood. Is our culture more peaceful, more loving, more full of brotherhood than it was back in those days? And it was pretty tumultuous back in those days. We see division, we see anger, we see hostility, we see shattered homes, we see broken people, and now we see criminality just abounding and the powers that be say, well that's a good thing. We actually think we can defy God and reshape human nature according to our wisdom. By, by our good thoughts. And that doesn't work. And we're baffled by the constant failure to make the world a better place. The song just rolled through my head. Make the world a better place. <laughs> God knows what is good. And, and we don't believe him. We don't believe him about what's good. The people of Judah descended from people that God set free with great miracles. They shrug at his guidebook. They don't 
think about it. It's not that they miss Bible study sometimes. It's not that. If they completely rejected God's holy law. Doesn't apply to them. The purpose for their existence as a nation. They rejected that purpose. We live in times like that. Not just failing to meet the provisions of God's law. But having contempt. Contempt for it. People hate the word of God. Attitudes like that were commonplace in Judah. Attitudes like that were commonplace in Israel. Attitudes like that are commonplace in America. If you're familiar with your Bible I want you to turn there to Psalm 119 for a minute. Psalm 119 if you know your Bible you know it's the longest psalm in the Bible. I'm not going to read the whole thing. 119. 119. We're going we're gonna to get to there. We're going to start in 97. <laughs> Thank you Weston. You're, you're, you're guiding me along. <laughs> we actually don't know who wrote this psalm. It could have been Ezra. Some people say. It certainly, it certainly reflects the God-centered heart of Ezra. And who loved the word of God. So here's what he says. Psalm 119.97. We're starting there. Oh how I love your law. It is my meditation. All the day. He loves it. He loves it. And what does it do for him? Verse 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever mine. I, I have more insight than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. That's so true. That's so true. There's incredible wisdom in the commandments of God. You know they're actually written for people just like us. People who are easily led astray. For people who sin easily. For people who have blind spots about their own failures and wickedness. But are really keen on finding faults in other people. The commandments are written for us. People who can be led down dark paths. The commandments direct us to the narrow path and the path to light. The path to the kingdom of God. The path of wisdom. The path of true goodness. Let's say for example, just as an example, just pulled it out of my head. Just imagine a world that has gone so completely insane it says there are 58 genders. Just try to picture a world like that. Now if you love God's law, you certainly have more insight than anyone that says there are more genders than cards in a playing deck. You know? The last I checked on Facebook there were 58 genders you could choose from. The man that owns Facebook is one of the richest men in the entire world. And he says there are 58 genders. But I am wiser. I am wiser because the word of God says God made human beings male and female. So when everyone is pressed to conform to what is not true. I can lean on the word of God and say that's not true that's crazy. God says there are two and I believe God. And here's one of those cases where science 100% backs up God. <laughs> if you just study a little bit about genetics. But science is afraid. They're afraid to say anything. But I'm not afraid because I love God's law. So I'm not afraid to say there are two genders. 
the gender thing is like a super obvious example because we're so far on this path to man being so passionate to take God's place that he has literally lost his mind. Literally. So yes, it's that kind of madness born out of an ideology that's created to support the sexual revolution. I mean that's where it's all coming from. And they can't put the genie back in the bottle. They're going to want to one day because there's going to be a lot of damage from this stuff. But they won't be able to put it back in the bottle. And all who disagree are hateful bigots. And they have to say that or else if they don't say that you're evil then the whole mad delusion collapses on them and they can't let that happen. They're sold out to it. This is where we ended up after many small compromises against God and how he designed and ordained human life and human institutions. Faithfulness to God's word would have kept us from going down that path but we've rejected the law of God, the word of God. So we're racing down that path. The psalmist continues by talking just like Amos does in 2.4 about keeping the commandments. Actually doing them. So verse uh, 101 of Psalm 119. So this is the guy that loves God's law. He says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your, from your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. He says I keep them because I love and I hate. I love God's law and I hate every false way. I'm actually not going to get to verse 105. You can <laughs> study that on your own. Weston insists that you return to that and go there. Amen. It's a great verse. Today in our time if you love God's word there are a thousand little lies in our culture. Thousands of little lies that the word of God can save you from. Can deliver you from. And that leads us to the last couplet. We're back in Amos. Verse 4. Their lies also have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked. When you walk away from the truth you believe in lies. It's pretty simple. And our culture is steeped in blatant, obvious, clear lies. Lies about how the creation is set up. Lies about the purpose of humanity. Lies about the spiritual world. Lies about morality. Lies about God. Lies about our own condition. Our own sinfulness. I'm not that bad. If you know the truth about who God is and what God is like and what he's revealed, what his revealed will is, you have more insight than all your worldly teachers. Now you might not know everything they know. They might know more about certain things. But on things that matter, you know so much more than they do. So much more. If you love God's law, you possess a lot more than those who don't. But there is a cost to loving God's law. There's a social cost. You'll be an outcast. An enemy of society. A cruel, heartless hater. That's you if you love God's law. 
You can be the nicest person in the world, but you are a hater if you speak the truth. This is tragic. It's just tragic on its face, but because the word of God, the reason it's tragic is because the word of God is the only hope. You see, we've gone astray in many ways over the centuries because people are sinners. But if the word of God is part of your culture, people go back to it and they say, that is wrong what we were doing before. And now we are going to correct that wrong. It's a corrective. But when you reject the word, you'll never find the right path. You'll never find healing. You'll never find the strength to go in the right direction. You'll never be able to say we're wrong. The word of God is the only sure path to moral clarity. And as long as it's upheld, there is a path. At least there's a path to wholeness and true goodness. But when God's w- revealed will is rejected, there's, there's, the hope is gone. What's the hope? We're going to finally figure it out ourselves? Our autonomous wisdom is going to bring us to the right place? Eventually we'll figure out we've gone crazy. And we might, but we'll be crazy in some other way. As long as the word of God is upheld, there's a good path and there's hope. You know, it was Satan. We talked about it in Sunday school. It was Satan in the garden who made Eve doubt the relevance of God's word. Remember what he, it was just a question. Has God said, did God really say that? What kind of a person is he anyway? Most people place their own preferences above what God has said. And there are many churches churches far far too many who will agree that your opinion is worth more than God's law and God's will. Now we know how God feels about that. The book of Revelation says he will remove the lampstands from churches that compromise. We're talking about that on Friday nights in the book of Revelation right now. But here to Judah because it's a nation the terror of national overthrow is what is, can, is <coughs> prophesied against them. Verse 5. So I will send fire on Judah. That's exactly what he said to these other countries. These pagan countries. I will send fire on your citadels. It will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. At the beginning of the prophecy it says God is roaring out of Jerusalem. His word is coming out of Jerusalem and now he says I'm going to burn the citadels of Jerusalem because they've rejected my law. The punishment is fire. You're going to lose everything. And that's the inevitable end. It's national ruin for all of these countries. And the decline, it takes time. It's got to work itself out. The culture abandons a biblical understanding of reality a little bit at a time, step at a time. Then they start rushing faster. We're kind of in the rushing faster mode. Judah had a solemn obligation, a sworn obligation to keep the commandments of God in every way. Now, we are new covenant believers. We have so much more than they had. We have more to uphold as well, more than the law. Judah had the law, the standard. We have a perfect savior who rescues us from the lies we believed and from our sins when we broke the commandments. 
but the standard is still there that doesn't change it's the moral law of God it's eternal as he is eternal because he is good and the law is based on his nature and we're still supposed to love it but being part of the new covenant means that the law is written on our hearts as well as in the word they cohere they, they're together and we're still to love his law now we're past the ceremonies we don't sacrifice goats anymore we've got our sacrifice it's Jesus Christ but we honor those laws because they pointed to him even though we don't keep those particular laws and Jesus declared all foods clean so we don't keep those laws anymore but the moral law that's eternal that's eternal Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 19 about circumcision he said circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but what matters is keeping the commandments of God that's the moral law which is re repeated in that's the it's all the things the New Testament affirms about the Old Testament so rituals fall away but the moral law is binding forever and if we know Christ we should love it because he loved it we should never chafe at God's moral will so our obligation to the Lord and our obligation to the world around us is the same as Israel and Judah's obligation to the Lord and to the world around them and that is to reflect the goodness of God we are to be a holy people to reflect the goodness of God to the world that's our calling it's actually our purpose in Christ and that means taking seriously the moral law not picking not choosing oh I like that one I don't like that one that one's we, we are to measure ourselves by the law we are to repent of all failure to uphold and keep the law and we are to choose the way of Christ even suffer for it if need be and it will probably need be I just want to close with Peter's words back to old Peter in 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 14 he says as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance but like the Holy One who called you be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written you shall be holy for I am holy those words are straight out of the law and Peter says you need to follow that law you shall be holy for I am holy let's pray our great father you made a glorious world that shows forth your creative brilliance your design your amazing intelligence and you made man to show forth your moral nature and we rebelled against you humanity has completely lost its way but by your wisdom you gave us your truth in words and you gave us a savior to enlighten our hearts to set us free from our own sin and to set us free from all the lies that men come up with the lies that pull men down may we love your truth more than the favor of men we pray in Jesus name Amen